are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our academic and occupational backgrounds in criminology and medicine to tell you crime stories each week. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you for joining us for another week of true crime. Today, we are discussing the unsolved mass murder of four University of Idaho students in their off-campus rental home in Moscow, Idaho. The victims were 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 21-year-old Kaylee Goncalves, 20-year-old Ethan Chapin, and 20-year-old Zana Kernodal. The four were found dead in their home on November 13th after their surviving roommates, who were two females living on the first floor, apparently had discovered one unconscious person called law enforcement, who then discovered the rest of the bodies. All four victims were stabbed with a large knife. Zana and Ethan were found on the second floor, presumably in the same bedroom, and Kaylee and Maddie were found on the third floor in the same bedroom. It was confirmed that they were actually found sleeping in the same bed. Apparently, Kaylee was more savagely injured than Maddie, and an unspecified number of the victims had defensive wounds to their hands, indicating that one or more of them were not asleep and fought back. Criminal profilers take a lot of different approaches when they're trying to analyze what the nature of one victim's injuries compared to the others might reflect. It has been reported that Zana Kernodal, who was presumably sharing a bedroom with her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, had defensive wounds. It's unclear if the savagery that seemed to be inflicted upon Kaylee was related to her putting up a fight, which then enraged the killer due to her resistance or if perhaps she was the target of this act, the one that the killer was looking for specifically. That's still unknown. The motive, the offender, all of this is a mystery. People at this point can only speculate who was the target and why the house was chosen. It seems easier for people to assume that there was one target to make sense of this crime, but it's possible that just the house itself was targeted or the sorority that they belonged to. I actually think that there were a few different Greek memberships among that group of people. Zana and Ethan went to a fraternity party and they apparently left around 9 p.m. Where they were between then and when they arrived home around 1.45 in the morning is still unclear. Maddie and Kaylee went out to a bar called The Corner Club where they stayed for many hours and they got home a little bit after the couple did. Were there any signs of forced entry? Not that have been reported. The entrance on the first floor required a keypad code to enter. Apparently, there were balconies on the second and third floors. And Kaylee, one of the victim's father, alluded to the media that the point of entry was a sliding glass door or window on the second floor. Because there was no sign of forced entry, many have speculated that the offender was known to the home and or to the victims. Ethan Chapin did not live in the home. He actually didn't even attend the university. He was visiting his girlfriend and he had two triplet siblings that he was visiting that attended the university. 
There was a creepy surveillance footage that was released to the media of Kaylee and Maddie stopping at some food truck on their way home from the bar. And there seems to be a hooded figure in the background that's watching them and is sort of following them around. But nothing really came from that. And the police don't consider that guy a suspect. And he was apparently identified. There was also other claims that Kaylee, quote unquote, had a stalker, according to some of her family and friends. The police said that there was a time in October where Kaylee was in a local business. It's kind of sketchy, the details. We don't know what the business was. But it's shown on surveillance that there's a man that follows her out to her car but does not make contact with her. And there was another man apparently there as well. And both of those men were there to, quote, meet women. So I'm guessing it's probably a restaurant or a bar, but it's hard to say. But we also don't know if that was the stalker or if that's just an incidental finding of the police. At least six calls were placed from Kaylee's phone between 2.26 a.m. and 2.52 a.m to her on-again, off-again boyfriend. Those calls went unanswered. Maddie apparently also made calls to this man. They were estimated to be killed sometime after 3 a.m. Law enforcement has apparently been asking around local retailers in Moscow that sell knives, specifically about fixed-blade or Rambo-style knives. It's been reported that They were likely killed while sleeping, but the presence of defensive wounds on some of the victims implies that the attack on their peers and the struggle that ensued woke them up. Kaylee and Maddie had ordered pasta carbonara at the food truck. Law enforcement said that they do not believe that the food truck person, the man in the hoodie, the driver of the private rideshare they took home, or the two surviving roommates are responsible for this crime. I believe they also said they don't believe that Kaylee's boyfriend, who was called repeatedly, is involved. Kaylee also had a dog at the residence, a golden doodle. There was a lot of speculation about the whereabouts of the dog. The dog was apparently found unharmed in a non-crime room. Kaylee was in town just briefly visiting. She had plans to move to Texas with a friend just like Ethan was just in town visiting. And it's tragic that this was their very last evening when they had their whole lives ahead of them. Madison was described as a very kind, happy-go-lucky and compassionate person. She had a long-term boyfriend who spoke very highly of her at a vigil. He said that she loved anything small, pink, and cute, and she loved being cozy and wearing fuzzy socks. Kaylee was driven and motivated. She had been Madison's best friend since middle school. The girls were both strikingly beautiful and had dyed their hair platinum blonde, very stylish. If you look at their Instagrams, they almost look like micro-influencers with the way that they pose for pictures and brand themselves. The surviving roommates who really aren't named in media sources to protect their identities Both made statements at the vigils, speaking very highly of the victims and saying how much they will be missed, that the world was lucky to have them when they did. One of the roommates even described Madison as her sorority big sister in that Madison and Kaylee had completely changed their lives and worldview and were just very influential. One of those roommates had the cell phone that placed the 911 call. And it's interesting to think how that came about. 
there was some speculation that the call for an unconscious person was related to someone fainting as a result of coming across the crime scene. Some also think that it just could be one of the victims that were unconscious and bleeding. But we've talked about this before. It's a little bit odd to describe someone who is most likely lying in pooled blood. If you've been stabbed numerous times with a large knife in the chest and upper body, it doesn't look like you are an unconscious person who's simply not waking up. It's pretty obvious that you are a victim of a homicide or a homicidal assault. So that's a little bit unclear. It could just be what the dispatcher put down, or maybe it is possible that someone had fainted. The police also said that the roommates on the lower level had called multiple friends over to the home for support during this time. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Apparently, the two roommates on the first floor slept through the entire attack. They weren't able to share any important information about who could have been responsible. They didn't see or hear anything, according to the police. It's interesting to think that they slept through such a brutal attack, particularly when at least one of the victims had defended themselves. So there could be some sort of a audible struggle. But then when you think about other crimes like the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman that OJ was accused of back in 94, that was an extremely brutal crime with a large knife that was full of defensive wounds and signs of struggle. Yet nobody heard a single thing. Sometimes these things happen so quickly that there's not enough time to scream. It does seem that the opinion of social media, I mean, not the consensus, but a lot of people seem to think that it's strange that they didn't wake up to any noise. This was an off-campus home where people in Greek life were living. I think it was likely a party house. I lived in a house my sophomore year that was a party house, and people would go in and out of the common room like the front door was often unlocked because this house was actually on campus. But people would come in and out if they left their belongings there or if they were meeting someone. I didn't care much for it. But when I heard somebody coming in, I usually looked out the peephole of my bedroom door. And if I didn't know the person, I would lock it. And of course, I would lock it before going to sleep for the night. That's what sounds like happened with these individuals, that they might have heard some sort of rustling around just the simple presence of another person. And they locked their doors and continued on with what they were doing, which according to law enforcement was sleeping. If you're in a deep enough sleep, if perhaps you're intoxicated too, I believe that the roommates went out with Madison and Kaylee that night and they were described, they being Madison and Kaylee, were described as being intoxicated by witnesses. So if the other roommates were also intoxicated, that would increase the likelihood of sleeping through something noisy. Chloe, do you think it's possible that the killer or killers just kept killing until they found their intended victim? It's interesting because there seems to be at least some knowledge of the layout of the home and where they are. Just the fact that the roommates on the first floor were ultimately spared. It seemed that they did have some focus and some mission in mind. This was a very angry killer who was taking their rage out on the victims. 
it's possible that they found their target first and were not satisfied by the killing as far as alleviating their uncontrolled rage. So they just continued killing victims until they felt better, so to speak. That's a possibility. Or like you said, maybe they couldn't find their intended victim, but you can't just be going around people's bedrooms in the middle of the night wielding a knife without raising some sort of suspicion. I think that if they weren't positive where they were, they could have gone into another room first and attacked people that they did not intend to target. That's definitely a possibility. It's also possible that the non-targets may have witnessed or otherwise interrupted the attack in the killer's mind, forcing them to kill them too. My gut tells me that this crime was committed by someone close to the victim's age, whether it be a fellow student or a local. But I agree with the police's theory that it could have been their first killing because apparently it was super sloppy and the crime scenes were a complete mess. It's impossible to know at this point who was the one that was targeted, if not all of them. Something about these crime scenes that are without a doubt, extremely bloody. And that's how it was described by law enforcement. Very messy, very bloody. I always get confused about how this person doesn't emerge from the scene dripping in blood, that there isn't like a trail of blood outside of the house. And maybe there is, but I do wonder if there was some level of comfort in that house, if maybe they washed up, showered, or changed. After that, I, I would really like to know how much time was spent at the scene because that can tell us a lot about the offender. A neighbor reportedly had a ring doorbell and was able to possibly capture something. But again, this is a non-confirmed fact that was circulated around the internet. I can't even say for sure if every single fact reported in the mainstream media is correct. I've seen articles that have said all four victims were sleeping, but I think law enforcement never really specifically said exactly where the victims were and what state they were in at the time of the killings. I think they may have said some of them were sleeping or some of them were in bed, but there have just been a few contradictions across reporting that make me question some of the narrative that is out there. Something else to consider is that Xana, Kaylee, and Maddie are all absolutely gorgeous women, and it's possible that one or all of them could have been targeted just because they were seen as unobtainable or otherwise by a type of person who feels like they deserve a woman's affection like an incel. When people talk about like the stereotypical chads of this world, they're being very reductive and oversimplifying someone's character. You can't make a generalized assumption about someone based on how they look or whether or not they're in Greek life or how they present on social media or otherwise. But someone who does fall prone to those thinking patterns would probably see all four of the victims as a Chad or a Stacy. This is incel slang for confident and attractive people who have plenty of sex. They are the object of utmost disdain of incels. They're jealous. They feel like they are undeserving of sexual attention. So an incel who might have 
known them or known of them could have taken their rage on their inability to form intimate bonds onto these so-called Chad and Stacys. This is just uh, out there theory. I think it's entirely possible that this offender was unknown to the victims and not an incel. It could have just been a stalker that was enamored with one or more of the girls or had some other motivation. None of the victims were reported to have been sexually assaulted. It's possible that they were and they just didn't come out and say this in the media to protect the integrity of the case. But even if they weren't sexually assaulted with you know, penetrative sex or molested in some way, a killer who is sexually attracted to the victim and is inflicting violence upon that victim as a sadistic way to gain pleasure. Some people literally get off simply from causing pain. They don't need any sort of genital or sexual contact. Just from murdering or hurting someone, they will get their jollies. Even if they weren't sexually assaulted, the killer could have been motivated by sex. It also could have been a personal motivation. We don't know. Hopefully all of this will come out. The Moscow Police Department just released a press release today, December 7th, 2022. Detectives are interested in speaking with the occupants of a white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra with an unknown license plate. Tips and leads have led investigators to look for additional information about a vehicle being in the immediate area of the King Street residence during the early morning hours of November 13th. Investigators believe the occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding the case. If you know of a vehicle or own a vehicle matching this description, please forward that information to the tip line. You can also submit any tips of any kind if you have information about this case to the tip line at 208-883-7180. The tip line email is tipline at ci.moscow.id.us. Your information, whether you believe it's significant or not, might be the piece of the puzzle that helps investigators solve these murders that absolutely need closure. There is a vicious killer free on the streets that must be caught. May the memories of Madison, Kaylee, Ethan, and Zana be a blessing to all who loved them. <laughs>